The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Guess what? It's time to hear about comic books again. So it's summer, and as you've noticed, Sharon and I have slowed things down a bit as we stay busy with our day jobs, as well as rest and recuperate and make plans for what we're going to be doing with modern minorities in the months to come. But by now, you know about my other podcast, Quarantine Comics, with friend of the pod, Ryan Joe. From time to time, some of the stories Ryan and I read reveal a minority truth for all of our majority ears, so it feels appropriate to share here on Modern Minorities. So I wanted to share our recent conversation about the graphic novel In Limbo, the debut graphic memoir by Deb J.J. Lee. This autobiographical tale of a young Korean-American teenager is a beautiful coming-of-age story covering mental health and gender identity. For so many of us who have often felt like outsiders, this story is painfully familiar and brings forth a lot of empathy for those around us who are invisibly struggling. We can't recommend this book enough, so hear this Quarantine Comics chat and be sure to pick up a copy of In Limbo wherever you get your favorite books. yourself off yeah it's only in your head you feel left out or look down on just try your best try everything you can it doesn't matter what they tell themselves when you're away it just takes some time little girl you're in the Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right. It just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, hey, Brian, everything will be just fine. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be an Asian teenage artist coming of age in the suburbs of a big city with an unpredictable and often unbearable mother while also saddled with a sense of regret and ennui? You know that well, sounds familiar. Because this is a story about your lived experience? I'm actually on good terms with my mom, Raman, I will have you know. But no, actually, I was referring to the fact that we've been reading a lot of stories about troubled teenage girls. Technically, Carrie was in her 20s, but as a father, I'm just trying to prep myself. Well, there's always boarding school. You can make her somebody else's problem. <laughs> I went to a boarding school. For, for your information. <laughs> oh, good. So there's precedent. <laughs> I'm Roman Segal. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who just love reliving our hormonal teenaged angst. And all of that anguished, tearful music. Everybody hurts. Sometimes. This week we're reading In Limbo, the debut graphic memoir by Deb J.J. Lee. Our story introduces us to Deb, a young Korean-American teenager trapped in an inescapable feeling of otherness. For a while, their English wasn't perfect. Their teachers can't pronounce their Korean name. Their face and their eyes, especially their eyes, feel wrong. Things only get harder once high school starts, shifting sands of arts and academics, escalating tensions at home, friendships made and frayed, and mental health struggles that are all too real to anyone who's ever felt like an outsider. 
With stunning art and a tale that feels like you're slipping in and out of an all-too-familiar dream, this is a story that you cannot leave easily. So, Ryan, how much emotional baggage did this book stir up for you? I actually had a lot of anxiety reading, especially the opening pages of the story. <laughs> like, I would say, like, Deb's high school experience was way more, I wouldn't say traumatic, because it's not like something like crazy and huge happens, but it's just a lot more fraught than mine was. And I think the thing that Deb experienced and that they are so good at, at capturing is the fact that there's no real safe place for Deb to go. Not except for orchestra, but of course in the very beginning they quit, but mm -hmm. wherever they go, they are reminded of how they don't belong because they are Asian and nobody else really is at home. They have this really tense relationship with her mom and even when they go to a korean school all of the korean students are incredibly mean to her even even their name right no one can pronounce it in their white person school and of course in in american school in their korean school everybody just makes fun of it because it's the name of an old man well i mean there's a moment it's like a i think like a two panel spread where they show their experience at Korean school where they're perceived as too American right. and their experience at like quote unquote American school where they're too Korean or too Asian. And it's like, you can't win. And I mean, that was one of those moments that just really, as someone who doesn't fit in with the, the Indian Indian crowd. Yeah. It just like really hit home. Like you can't fucking win. You can't win. Where do you, there's no sense of belonging and it's really just isolating. That was actually really interesting to me also because Deb spent their first three years in Korea. And the fact that even being a Korean-born Korean-American, they feel too American around everybody else. But the other thing I think that Deb really makes a point of is that they really, especially in high school, have no conception of the troubles of what other people are going through. You know, you're, this is like every high schooler. You're caught in your own head. All of your troubles are the only troubles and they're magnified to the nth degree. And Deb, in, in their memoirs, is, is very honest with that. And it's only towards the end where Deb starts to realize that some of her other friends and classmates who they thought might have abandoned them actually were going through their own shit. That was probably just as bad as what Deb was going through. And Deb just wasn't aware of it because Deb was just caught up in their own head, which is sort of typical of, of teenagers. So like to the point of Deb feeling not really in touch with their Korean self, either one wonders even in korean school if other people were feeling the same way and deb just wasn't aware of that you know it was another really interesting thing when i read the front and the back of the book and like the names who were like heaping praise on this book are just immense but i was like okay this is a queer coming of age memoir we've been making a real effort to not misgender the character deb the author deb as we've been reading it but honestly like I didn't even read that much into queer identity I was reading as I was reading the book. I I'm sure it's there and I probably if upon a rereading I would catch it, but I found more of it to be about like Asian immigrant sense of belonging and I hate to say it, like the typical teenage shit that we all feel. That's where my angst and anxiety came from as I was reading this book. Yeah. And then to recognize that some of that might have been born from that like gave me even more empathy for fuck, it must be like even harder. Like when you are having 
I don't know, man. It's just stuff. Well, Deb's gender identity isn't really dealt with in, in Limbo, and whether that's just a part of their life that they decided not to dramatize, or if yeah. that's not something that even registered until they were perhaps older, which would have encompassed a period after but, but, Limbo. But, but knowing that, like, did you read into any of that inside of the relationships that Deb had in the book? Like, the best friend that they fall out with, etc.? No, I, I didn't. I mean... Deb's depression is just, it's like a milieu of things, right? Mm -hmm. It's racial. Perhaps it's based off of their uncertainties around their gender. It's this feeling of not fitting in. There's the familial aspect. There's just a whole bunch of different stuff. And whether, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so I, di I didn't read like any one specific thing. And mm -hmm. it was, I, and actually that's one of the things I, I admired about this book. It's never one thing that's mm -hmm. really upsetting to Deb. It's just a whole bunch of things. And it's a whole bunch of things that oftentimes I don't think Deb really knows how to articulate. And that gets oftentimes very misconstrued, right? When Deb tries to commit suicide, Quinn thinks that Deb did it because of her. And just that, that's the basis of Quinn cutting Deb off. It's sort of a miscommunication around it. There's a whole bunch of other things that's happening in Deb's head that leads her to that moment where she tries to OD on on Tylenol of all things, but it's, it's, it's stuff that I, I think isn't, it doesn't have like an easy, Oh, it all leads back to this one thing. It all leads back to racial identity. It all leads back to problems yeah, with yeah, mom. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's all just thrown into this sort of boiling melting pot. And, mm -hmm. and it just manifests in this habit of self-destruction. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the mom <laughs> in the intro, you <laughs> mentioned having a great relationship with you. And honestly, I think I had a pretty good relationship with my parents and, I can't say that was the same for a lot of my friends of children of immigrants growing up. Like I, in fact, I have one of my very close friends was like, your family seems so normal by comparison. It's kind of what I've been told. And I, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm happy to have had that experience. But were there other things that like, honestly, like it's so superficial, but it's like, I played the violin. I definitely not. I played the violin level. too. Yeah. When did you start? Wait, when did they make you start? I only started, I only did it in fifth and sixth grade. My parents let me okay. violin and art in after school lessons because I had an aptitude for music and visual arts. And I quit violin and I stayed, I went all in on the visual arts through all through high school. Still the closet creative wish list things I wish I could spend more time on. But it was like the, it, what's interesting is the mom in In Limbo, Deb's mom is like significantly more supportive about the quitting and the rejoining. And I thought that yeah. was really interesting. So it's it's an interest. It's so initially, it's sort of like the mom seems like very shrill, tiger mom sort. And then, yeah. you know, there's this moment where that surprises you when Deb says, I'm quitting violin. The mom is, of course, pit about, pissed about that. And then she like enrolls Deb into this New York City art school and says, hey, it's my job to make you happy. And it's like, oh, OK, it's another dimension to mom. But then the mom goes back to being really at times just really really harsh on deb mercurial and, she's mercurial right but but, kind of... but also there's this point later on where deb gets sick of it right where the mom says hey it's my job to make sure that you're happy towards the end and deb turns their back and it's sort of like the sign where she's just tired of this pattern of well she can articulate they articulate it also sometimes she's like the best mom of the year and other times she's just really really mean to her and they're getting tired of that sort of cyclical 
pattern. And even in the Debs afterwards on the mom comes down pretty harsh. I think Deb writes, my mom has acknowledged her wrongdoings and accepts the content of the book as it is and has sweetly requested that I, quote, make her look pretty, end quote. So even Deb's afterwards, it's definitely like, mom, you are wrong. You were mean to me. (laughs) But I do think that Deb does, at least in the actual comic, tries to be generous about the treatment of their mom, despite having some... Very, very nasty dust-ups. And I will say, have you ever told your mom to shut up, Roman? I I don't want to put that in recording, ever. <laughs> I, I told my mom to shut up once when I was yeah, about Deb's yeah, age. No, I've done it. Oh, it did not. It did not. Oh, whack. It did not go so well. So, I mean, that blow-up that the mom has when, when Deb says shut up. I don't know if you, <laughs> if you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, when, when that's, uh, yeah. When, I remember that scene, that panel, just, Deb says shut up. I'm like... And then, and then, and then, all the drama happens the next page. But even before I flip the page, I'm like, oh, I, uh, you know, suck uh, you know where this is going. It is. You don't have to tell an Asian mom to shut up. To shift gears a little bit, one thing that I, it's worth mentioning: in most comic books, when someone's speaking another language, you do the brackets thing so you can understand they're translated from whatever language. You see mm. that in comics, whether it's Italian or Skrull. Like, and in this comic, they do a fair number of that for like extended conversations that are in Korean. But there's moments where what Deb does is she actually writes the word in Korean. And I think to signal, she only half understands the Korean that her mom is speaking. And oh, interesting. I, I was actually wondering about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, because remember, Deb doesn't, she speaks, I'm going to misnumber this. They speak at almost like a elementary school level of Korean. And I kind of get that, like, my Punjabi is probably, Punjabi and Hindi is, like, way worse than Deb's Korean, but it shows their lack of understanding sometimes. And, but at the same time, every time I read it, I was like, oh, is the mom cursing? (laughs) Like, is something so (laughs) terrible being said that it's in Korean? But it's not that. It's, okay, so one reflection upon the mercurial nature of Deb's mom. Obviously, there's a lot of reflection on my own immigrant parents and probably your own immigrant parents. But again, we've talked about this a little bit on the pod. I'm reflective of my own mercurial nature with my kids. Like uh, right now, I've I've had I've been suffering from like a major headache and health issue for the last week. Everything's fine, but as a result, I've been really like testy around my children, especially my seven year old daughter. So much so that I had to apologize in the morning as I was dropping her off. And upon picking her up, I gave her fair warning. Hey, honey, I'm not feeling that good. I'm going to be a little short-tempered. You're probably best to like leave me alone and let me get dinner made, etc. And I think a lot about the mixed messages that my mercurial, grouchy nature sends to my children and what my daughter and son are going to remember me as. And reading Deb's interpretation, I'm like, maybe my daughter shouldn't go into the arts and draw a graphic novel about how I, how well, I was in her youth. What, what's nice is at least you give her a heads up. Deb's mom doesn't seem to give her a heads up. You fuck up the kitchen, it's just... it's well, all... I think it's because I was thinking about this book. This morning I was thinking about this book and my oh. reflections on this book. But that's a good thing, right? Because now you're th- thinking about how Deb's mom came across. And... So if you're a parent, read this book. <laughs> Read this book to understand. In a way, though, like, I, I, I appreciate In Limbo and also the Zoe Thorogood we read. It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth because they're both really good at giving you a very clear picture about what's going on 
in the author's heads at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. Deb's book is a little bit probably about 10 years before, and Zoe's is a lot more recent. But mm-hmm. I feel they both just create a really clear picture of the internal complexity of these characters, of the authors, frankly, during some very troubled times in their lives. And it's actually really cool to see this illuminated because it changed the way you interacted with your own daughter, Raman. Yeah. I'm... Graphic memoirs, I don't want to say worry me, but like I, I feel like, not even graphic, well, I mean, whether it's about deep personal experiences like Zoe Thorogood or Deb Lee or even some of the like historical events we've read about, I think they hit and they resonate so much harder. To be clear, it's an artistic interpretation, but knowing that it's rooted in the truth and it's not a fiction makes the story punch a lot harder, especially mm. in graphic memoirs. Because obviously with film, you're I think I've talked about this about the comics medium before. With film, you're cycling through it. You're moving through time with the director, with the actors. With prose, you're just reading and processing, internalizing in real time. So you're moving through the pages. But but with graphic novels, you can't help but pause and linger on moments. The moment that they told their mother to shut up. The right. moment that they didn't fit in. Like It's like poetry in the sense that you can linger and you frames and sequences can just like sit with you. And you're literally, you take a screenshot in your head and you're left with it. That, that image burns in your brain. A lot more uh, in this medium, I think. It also feels also the two you mentioned, Lee and Thorogood, because they're memoirs, you get a real feel for how complex and contradictory their mentalities often are. There's a richness to it that you wouldn't get if they were trying to project themselves into the heads of somebody else. Um, in a way, because both Zoe and Deb are so in touch with their own emotions and how they're feeling and are so talented as artists and bringing that to the surface and showcasing that in a graphic form. So it's both their own observations and their own sensitivities in their observations, as well as you know, their ability to communicate that in a graphic form that really gives it a sort of unique power, I think. You're a writer, Ryan. Would you ever write a, a memoir? No, I, I think my life is boring. You know, <clears throat> I have nothing to write about. Would you? I mean, what do you think? Would you? Was this, would you ever want to do something like this? I mean, I think uh, there's a book I read recently called Storyworthy. I'd highly recommend it. It's by one of the Moth Grand Slam winners. If you listen to the Moth podcast or the Moth Radio Hour, and I've been going through this exercise of effectively light journaling every day to write a story and a, a segment from the day for the past few months. And there's some other exercises to like. It's an exercise of recollection that gets you to dredge up old stories. And some of the stuff we've been reading on this podcast, my other podcast, where I talk with a lot of guests about their youth and it dredges up a lot of experiences. I guess what I'd say, Ryan, is I think it's easy to say we've all led fairly boring lives. And definitely some people have lived more interesting lives than we have. But I think everyone's life has an interesting story. You just have to kind of like dig for it. and Or we have to dig for it, either as someone interviewing the other person or literally reflecting and thinking upon the things that happen. Is there enough for a book? I don't know, because there's a talent to writing it as well. I would say that my interiority is so tedious, I don't really want to spend too much time thinking about it. But I do feel like, I mean, like you're stuck in your own head all the time. It is, to me, it's sort of boring because how you think, I just don't feel like interested in unpacking it. 
which might you could also say is just sort of like a lack of introspection so who knows or or a lack of willingness to introspect what are you hiding ryan what is what's behind there (laughs) yeah that's true it's all of the children i've killed oh wait we're recording (laughs) worth noting and i it, it sounds like we both really enjoyed this book, which makes for a short, interesting episode. But and, and so getting into our own interiority is always fun. But like he does, I, it's the art is beautiful. I cannot like the cover if it's like the, the abstract nature of the cover. Like, I'm not sure what dream she's passing through on this cover, but like the monocolor. It's just so beautiful. Like I. Yeah. You know, I picked this up and it's the, the cover quote is by Tilly Walden, who's someone who I hope we read in this a to z thing that we're doing right now the first three pages are all or the, the back cover in the first three pages are all quotes by like people i just genuinely admire be it sean tan sarah alfagi malika Gadib, arkiku johnson etc etc just like the cover blows you away the quotes blow you away and just flipping through this book like if you can walk to your library and just go flip through it you can't not be dr- and it's like a dreamlike state, similar to Carrie and even the Zoe Thorogood books, because it's this monocolor. There's clearly like really amazing inking and coloring that's going on, even though it's it's monocolor. Like, yeah, I actually kind of wish I could see some of Deb's work in color, actually. I mean, because if you look at some of Deb's illustrations, including the one on the cover, it's actually like really, really vibrant. And I do like some of the black and white quality of what they're doing. It's actually very, very moody and really cool. But I do actually really like the vibrancy of their colored work. And I was like, oh, that'd be actually cool if we could see more of it, though that would obviously probably been a pain in the ass to to do. I will say, after reading this graphic novel, I did look for, I did look at, try to find pictures of Deb and look at their eyelids. And look at them well let, let's talk about that well, look, so, they're, yeah their eyelids yeah they def and and yes deb has uh, i had well talk ex- explain double, this because double eyelids i i didn't i did not oh, know this know about, i had to actually ask eyelids oh well okay no no I, I know that most people have double eyelids and we obviously all know that many east asians don't have the uh epa something full epicanthic fold epicanthic yes. fold yes and so we're, we're all aware of that what I was not aware of, and I had to ask my Chinese American wife while I was reading this, like, like, is this a thing? Oh yes. So does she have? So does, ex- does, we can cut this part, but ex- does she have? Does she have the folds? No, no, my wife's not getting some form of surgery. No, so no, no. What, no but, but, but okay, so some people, I have the folds, man. You've seen my my face. Here's the thing: I'm face blind. I don't pay attention to this shit. But explain to our audience one the eyelid thing, but more importantly, the commonly accepted practice in Korean culture. Explain this. It's not just Koreans; like us other Asians also. But yes, Korean. Really? Sophie's staring at me now, blinking. That's my Sophie, wife. your Korean American wife. Yes. No, your Korean no, Korean, Korean wife. Korean, Korean, wife. Korean. Yes. But yeah. she, so the... Wait, you your look, wife stares at you while you're doing your podcast? My wife, like, hides from me. Well, she, she, heard me she heard me being, like, epicanthic fold, and she like, just rushed out <laughs> of the room. <laughs> it's like, check, she's like, check it out. So the epicanthic fold is sort of, like, for all you white people out there who take it for granted, is sort of like that Black people, too. Black, black people, people, Hispanic white, people, too. Black, Hispanic people. Non-Asian, non-Asian people. Non-Asian. So, well, some Asians have it. I have it. It sort of like gives you that double eyelid, which basically makes your eye look wider. If you look at a lot of East Asian eyes, they have like sort of like a, a 
I guess there, there's it does they don't have that double eyelid that line. It's a single. It's a right single fold in the eyelid. It's a single fold, and that that's not considered attractive. I'm not the one who said that. That's that's just sort of culturally, it's more attractive to have the double eyelid because it makes your eye look bigger. And so, especially in Korea, it's by very... by Asian some Asian standards. Because isn't it the other way around in terms of like Asian objectification? Like people like the asian eyes right i mean but but i would say even if you have the epicanthic fold you can still have the asian eyes like sophie yeah. has it and my entire family actually has has it and we still have i would say asian eyes like we still have so our eyes are distinctly asian so it's i i i think it's it's not like the epicanthic fold like makes you look automatically Caucasian, but it does give your eye. Okay, okay. So you, you've set this up and explained it. Now explain it in the context of the book. Well, it's not just the book; it's just culturally, people want that epicanthic fold, and so they will have surgery to get it, and including Deb. And Korea. Is I had never just... heard. I had never heard of this until I read this book. Oh really? Oh wow. Well, I think most of our audience, who I would assume are not Asian, did not know this. Yeah, well, in Korea, it's it's. So I was talking to. I've actually talked to Sophie about this, and she had mentioned that it's not even considered surgery. There is just quote unquote a procedure, because it's so common. Like you is just kind of go. Explain what the procedure is. Explain what the procedure is. This just the the procedure is they just cut a, an extra fold into your 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 eyelid. Deb J J Lee explains it much better and graphically, but it's essentially yeah, you just get an extra eyelid. And, and and this is like a major recurring theme of something she aspires to do and their very close friend who's American but is really curious and wanting to learn about not just Korean language but that Korean actually, culture. Yeah. That and actually wonders, really well, how, could, how could you do this? How could you do Quinn's this? Quinn's reaction was interesting to me because like that's why I was talking to – I talked to Sophie about this last night. I was reading. It's not that big of a deal, right, Sophie? And Sophie's like, no, it's just – it's just it's, it's like I said, everyone gets do. it. It's a procedure. No one gives a shit. It's just yeah. you do it. You go in. You get it. It's done. But I think in America where Asian identity is something that distinguishes you, mm. that eyelid surgery – perhaps it feels a bit more loaded and consequential, especially through the point of view of a white girl who thinks of Deb as perhaps obliterating or trying to obliterate or trying to mask her Asian identity. But it's not really, I mean, like I said, like it's, if, if like <clears throat> in Korea, it's just a procedure. It's just, it's just so common. So it's just, it's just, yeah, a different it, it, it's almost like it, it's, it's this weird thing where non-immigrants are like, you're so lucky. Why would you want to give it up? And it's like this lack of acknowledgement. Well, I don't think anyone of, says you're lucky to have yeah, a monolid, but that's no, that no, but it's one. like, why would, why would you want to give up your heritage when it's almost like, it's sweet that you're saying it and trying to be an ally, but you clearly don't understand the, need to fit in we need to because of all the other passive aggressive bullshit that goes on like all it's of just our a needs it's a... to want to fit yeah yeah but it's a i mean it's a beauty standard that goes beyond just wanting to be white i think it's a beauty standard that exists in asia and like i said it's not like asians don't have the double eyelid a lot of asians have it it's just mm, considered mm. desirable for whatever reason but to that point though like like sophie she 
she would dye her hair a lot and then in Korea. And then she came here and she didn't realize that, oh, actually having black hair is considered unique. Or maybe if not unique, it's sort of a distinguishing feature. But of course, when you're in Asia, everyone has black hair. So people are just trying to to, to dye it a different color to, to stand out. But here, it's that, not noting, as necessary. So my son, too, has not... My daughter has thick hair like me, Indian. My son has wispier hair. Like, it's, it's not that it's thin. It's just not as thick as mine. So it's closer to my wife's hair. But for a while, as his hair was growing, we were like, wow, it's brown. But, oh, it must be brown because we can kind of see his head underneath. But my son's hair is brown. <laughs> and I'm like, where is this coming from? This is very strange. Like, two Asian people. And don't make the obvious mailman joke. But it's like, literally, what is going on here? This is genuinely, like, really interesting that his hair is brown. I have to say. I, like, my I brother had, had curly hair for a while. No one in my family had curly hair. And then one day my mom shaved it off because it was summer and it was hot. And it grew back straight. Hair's just, just freaking weird, man. <laughs> it's the ongoing mystery that no one's motivated enough oh, to try yeah. to solve. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Ryan, I got, I got to ask my next to last question. Would you recommend In Limbo to, to someone to read? Oh yeah, I definitely recommend it in Limbo. It's just it's a, it's a really honest story. It's one that I feel creates just this really interesting portrait of Deb during a particularly fraught time in their life. And the art is beautiful also. I, I think that Deb has a very unique aesthetic and their art is not like really I don't I think anyone who's who's working today. So yeah, absolutely. How would you? Would you? I think I, I think the answer is yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think unequivocally. This is one of those rare episodes where we're on the same page about how much we like this book for different reasons, but a lot of the same. But I think I'm going to put my other podcast, Modern Minorities, hat on and probably air this episode in that feed at some point. Like, this book is the perfect Modern Minorities read. If you want to understand not just the Korean-American experience, and absolutely there were learnings for me, and even while there's not a lot of queer identity stuff in here, I think if you read between the lines, you can try to sense the feelings that she's having, even though it's not articulated of why, but I hate to say it. Like there's so many things that rang true for me as an Asian American growing up in this country. I think she even spent a few years growing up in the South. I think it was Alabama. And some of those things were like, just. So actually I was actually wanted to ask you about Deb's experiences in Alabama and how it gelled with yours. Oh, it's a thousand percent accurate. It barely scratches the surface, but in those few panels, it's just an earned authenticity of what to expect. And, and, and some of that is because it's just like, and it's all humans, like things were, I'm just as ignorant about certain things, but I have the ability to try to catch myself on it, be it pronouns and misgendering. And I, at the same time, like, I just think it's, it's not a monoculture anymore, for sure. The world is different than it was 40 years ago. But her experiences 20, 30 years ago were in the limited panels that they showed. And someone I want to reach out to to have a conversation with on my other podcast, right? As with a lot of these authors that we're reading, they had an authentic experience in Alabama that rang true to what mine was, I guess, is the short answer. But you also got to ask me another question, Ryan. Oh, well, Ryan. I mean, okay, we've read 
some really heavy shit for these last three. Yeah, we're gonna hours. take it. So, we're gonna we're gonna be really mad. Please, light. please, please tell me. Please, please, please tell me, Ryan. Well, bring me up, bring it up a notch. Next week, what are we're we gonna reading? Just, next we're week. gonna just cheer you up a little bit because we're gonna read the first ever graphic novel to win the Pulitzer, and that is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Published. Oh, is that, uh, is that like about cartoon mice hanging out with yes, cats, right? Cartoon yeah, mice hanging yeah. out with like a little Tom and Jerry sort of cartoon. I don't know why people are trying to ban it. Anyway, as we all know, Mouse is about the Holocaust, and it is it's basically Spiegelman interviewing his dad about his experiences as a Polish Jew during the Holocaust. And through the 80s and 90s, Spiegelman turned that into a comic that was originally published in the comics journal Raw. And we're going to read Mouse 1 and Mouse 2. So the entire shebang. The Mouse Cinematic Universe? The Mouse Cinematic Universe. I'm sure it's going to be a a cheerful one, but an important one. I think Mouse has been... It's like goes on and off the ban list. And I think it's back on it for some stupid reason. So fuck them. We're going to read it. I'm just looking at our spreadsheet of everything we're doing in this A to Z thing. <laughs> it's pretty dark. I mean, there's a little humor coming up, but but like this is I don't think we read a really happy book for a while. <laughs> I don't think maybe we'll try to read a happy one at some point. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Jones. Off, yeah. It's only in your head you feel left out or look down on. Just try your best, try everything you can. It doesn't matter what they tell themselves when you're away. It just takes some time, little girl. You're in the Everything, everything will be just fine Everything, everything will be alright, alright It just takes some time Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride Everything, everything will be just fine Everything, everything will be alright Hey, you know they're all the same You know you do it better on your own So don't buy it Gotta live right now Just be yourself It doesn't matter if that's good enough For someone else It just takes some time Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride Everything Everything will be just fine Everything, everything will be all right, all right It just takes some time, little
that'll curl you in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right, ooh, all yourself off yeah it's only in your head you feel left out or look down on just do your best do everything you can don't worry about their bitter hearts I'm gonna say Everything, everything will be alright It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.